0: All right, kids, welcome back to another episode of questions, questions and answers. I'm Scott Horton and um, uh, you can sign up to hear these things on uh, the feed at scotthorton.org slash show. Do my best to get to what y'all are wondering about there, uh, but mostly check out the interviews at scotthorton.org slash interviews, 4,000 something of them now going back to 2003 there. Mostly all anti-war stuff. All right, Um, libertarianinstitute.org. That's my institute. Me, Jerry LaBelle, Will Grigg, and Sheldon Richmond. And uh, listen, I got important and bad and serious news for you here. Uh, Will Grigg is very sick. You may already know. Uh, He was in the intensive care unit a few days ago. He's out now, but he doesn't apparently uh, seem to be getting too much better uh, from there. Uh, In other words, he's not out of the woods. You know he's he's awake, he's uh, eating and drinking and things. Um, but he he is sick. He's last I heard, uh, he's still basically staying the same rather than improving, which is itself bad. Almost counts as getting worse, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, so um, uh, a good friend of the show AJ Ellis has set up a GoFundMe for Will Griggs' family. He has five kids, and um, they are very dependent on him. And if you go to the blog at libertarianinstitute.org slash blog, you can read all about how to help out at that GoFundMe. And we've also posted at antiwar.com, and uh, Eric at Antiwar said he was going to send it to Lou Rockwell as well. So hopefully this will really help. Uh, Man. I mean, just on a personal basis, I can't overstate how much Will means to me as a friend, um, but also, you know, really as a mentor. I mean, I've been reading Will Griggs since the the least mid to late 90s, you know, in the New American Magazine. Uh, I've learned so much from him, and he's a real role model for a lot of us in a lot of ways in this movement. So anyway, uh, help support if you can. You know, not all of us have any working capital, but some of y'all do. And so how about make a capital investment and in keeping Will Grig afloat, you know? Something like that during a real tough time for him. Just go to libertarian uh, blog to find out all you can there. All right, and then I got a bunch of questions here. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm way behind on doing these, and I'm going to have to try to go really fast because it's just too much stuff. And I know that this could all take a really long time. We got a few different questions about Ukraine. Basically, the deal is America overthrew the government there twice in 10 years the Orange Revolution of 2004, and um, then the coup of uh, February the 21st, 22nd of 2014. And what happened was there was going to be a trade deal uh, with the EU. But then they changed it and said it has to be only with the EU. You cannot have another trade deal with the Russians or this one is canceled. And by the way, we're going to do the IMF uh, gangsterization, uh, steal all your resources and your pension fund and all this stuff in the name of austerity. Well, the Russians said, well, geez, you can have a trade deal with us and we'll give you $15 billion instead of taking it. So how do you like that? So the Ukrainians uh, went ahead. It was a Russian-leaning government anyway. They went ahead and canceled the deal with the EU. Uh, again, the EU had changed the terms. Well, that led to the big protest movement in the West uh, that was really bankrolled and controlled all along by the Americans and their sock puppets, and which led uh, ultimately to a coup d'etat on the night of February 21st, 22nd, 2014. And then the new coup junta declared war on the East. Uh, Everybody makes such a big deal about the seizure of Crimea, but that was a defensive move by the Russians, who, uh, after all, Russia had owned the Crimean Peninsula since the days of Catherine the Great, before our constitution was ever even ratified, and it was only Khrushchev, the general secretary of the Communist Party, the dictator of the Soviet Union, who by his whim uh, gifted the Crimean Peninsula to Ukraine. But it didn't matter at the time, of course, because everybody was answerable only to the Kremlin. Anyway, it was the USSR, right? But then, since the end of the Cold War in nineteen ninety, in the end of the Soviet Union in nineteen ninety-one, when Ukraine was granted independence, uh, the Russians have just maintained a lease ever since then. And Putin, of course, has been in power since the year two thousand, and he was perfectly happy to just maintain a lease for the Russian naval base at Sevastopol. There, it wasn't until. Ukrainian politicians started threatening to uh, undo that deal, to cancel that deal uh, with the Russians that Putin's little green men left their base, as they're called, uh, left their base and went and um, and seized the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, not one shot was fired. No one was killed. There were a couple warning shots fired over the head of uh, some Ukrainian soldiers, but no one was killed in the seizure of Crimea. Then they held a plebiscite whose numbers were confirmed later by German and other Western polling sources, um, and they decided to vote to rejoin Russia. Now, that is not, you know, all as according to the international law, but then again, neither is overthrowing the government of Kiev twice in 10 years. And so then there is a war that broke out in the east, and the Easterners in the Donbass region, they said to Russia, let us rejoin Russia too. We want to be part of Russia. Well, not so much rejoin, but anyway. Um, and Putin said no. Putin sent special forces to help them keep the Kiev coup d'etat junta at bay, but did not ever invade with infantry the way that they claimed uh, all through 2014 and has made no attempt to. You know, consolidate. And look, the Russian army, if they wanted to, they could march right to Odessa. They could march all the way to Kiev if they really wanted to. But, say they wanted the eastern half of Ukraine. They could go all the way to Odessa, take a a major port city there, completely cut off Ukrainian access to uh, the Crimean Peninsula in any way, etc. And who's going to stop them? Nobody. I mean, not even the Americans. What are they going to do? Go to nuclear war over Odessa? So, But they're not doing that. Expansionist, uh, you know, Tsar Vlad the Terrible is not consolidating eastern Ukraine. All he's doing is helping the people of eastern Ukraine defend themselves from the anti-terrorism campaign of the coup d'etat junta based in Kiev. uh, Which is made up, in fact, of a bunch of Nazis, too. Look at the speaker of their parliament. is Andrei Perubi from Right Sector. The Hitler-loving Nazis. He's the speaker of the freaking parliament right now. And so, uh, hardly anybody ever explains what the hell's going on here at all. If you were to see this on TV at all, it would only be on the Lair News Hour, right? And then the Lair News Hour would tell you, history began in March of 2014 when Russia seized Crimea. And they'd have you think that it was some violent, you know, invasion. When in fact it was nothing of the sort. They just left their base where they already were. And nobody died at all. Nobody. But anyway. um, So someone had asked me. Hey what's a good footnote for this? So I asked James Carden, And Carden explained. See it wasn't just that Putin thought. Hey maybe there would be a threat to the Sevastopol base. It's that he had very good reason to believe. And here is from the UK House of Lords parliamentary investigation. Where they say. Um, it is called, The EU and Russia, Before and Beyond the Crisis in Ukraine. Chapter 5, The Crisis in Ukraine and the EU's Response. And then it's uh, point number 193. On the 1st of March, 2014, three former Ukrainian presidents, Leonid Kravchuk, Leonid Kuchma, and Viktor Yushchenko, he's the guy that Americans stalled in the coup of 24, uh, 2004, called on the new government to renounce the Kharkiv Agreements. And that is the deal where Russia gets to keep the base. So there was an outright threat to the status of their base. And it's their only warm water port uh, that stays ice-free all year round. And it's extremely important to the Russians. And this would be uh, like if the Russians had sponsored a bunch of Nazis to overthrow the government of Canada, to install a pro-Russian government there, and then to start you know, sending in trucks and equipment and, and troops to start training their forces for a possible war with us. That's the position that we're putting the Russians in. And Vladimir Putin said just the other day, do we really want to escalate this to a Cuban missile crisis level here? And it wasn't a threat in in that sense. He was It it sure didn't sound like it. (laughs) He was saying, why are you guys continually ratcheting this this tension up? That's not what we want. And, you know, you don't have to be a defender of Putin to be a defender of the truth. I mean, the guy basically is a right-wing Republican politician in Russia. So I don't like right-wing Republican politicians here, there, or anywhere else. Um, But the fact is he's not an expansionist. He's just not. And all the accusations that he is are a bunch of lies. Um, And yeah, 10,000-something people died in that war in the East. It was Crimea where nobody died. It was in the East. There's 10,000-something people died. The UN said it was 9,600 as of last September. And then even according to the Voice of America, it was the Ukrainian side that restarted the war just earlier or I guess last month now, in early March. Oh no, today is still the 31st, sorry. So yeah, earlier this month. Um, And then, here's some footnotes for you. Why the Ukraine crisis is the West's fault. And that's John Mearsheimer in Foreign Affairs. Why the Ukraine crisis is the West's fault. And it's actually big of the editor of Foreign Affairs to have published that, because the editor of Foreign Affairs, Gideon Rose, you can find him on the Colbert Report uh, you just type in crisis in Ukraine, Gideon Rose, or just Gideon Rose, Stephen Colbert, and you'll find the interview from uh, February the 24th, 2014, just two days after the coup, celebrating the success of the coup an American policy and breaking away Ukraine from Russia. So for him to run John Mearsheimer saying basically this is all the West's fault, I thought that was pretty big of Gideon Rose, even if he's dumb enough to to have said what he said to Colbert. But anyway... Um, then go to consortiumnews.com. Actually, go to your search engine. Type site colon consortiumnews.com Ukraine coup, and you'll find cheering a democratic uh, coup in Ukraine, Uh, the phony corruption excuse for the Ukraine coup, the mess that Newland made, the neocons and the Ukraine coup. Uh, Yats is no longer the guy. Uh, There was another one, uh, New York Times... Continues to refuse to recognize Ukraine coup. It's a bunch of great stuff there. Robert Perry, Ray McGovern, Gilbert Doctorow, James Carden, all at consortiumnews.com. They've got it all for you there. And then here's some good keywords for you to search the most blatant coup in world history. That is the quote from George Friedman, the head of Stratfor, which is known as the private CIA. And he's being interviewed by Commerçant. And he explains. He doesn't just say that. He doesn't just assert that. He explains. America is trying to hem in and contain and limit the Russians. And they have an interest in the status quo. And we have an interest in rolling them back. And then when he says it's a coup, they say, do you mean the way that they worked the deal? Where the cops pulled back, but the Nazis didn't, seized all the buildings and ran the government out of town? and and Or do you mean the entire Maiden protest movement? And he says the entire thing. was He doesn't say was a CIA op, but that's basically it. The U.S. had financed all these human rights groups that were supporting here. Do you mean the termination of the agreement of February 21st or the entire Maiden protest movement? The whole thing. After all, the U.S. openly supported human rights groups in Ukraine, including financially. And then he says, uh, meanwhile, Russia's special services completely missed these trends and how bad it was going. But there's the uh, there's the quote. It truly was the most blatant coup in history, according to uh, George Friedman from Stratfor. And yeah, okay, that's a bit of confirmation bias and that kind of thing, but it's against interest for him to say such a thing, right? That's the point. Um, All right, cool. So I already spent way too much time on that, but I think I answered all of your questions about that. Um, Then uh, what to read regarding Yemen. First, read at harpers.org, Acceptable Losses by Andrew Coburn. That'll really help fill you in, what's going on. And then, you know, I really like also... Uh, from back in 2012, this is context before the current war against the Houthis broke out. This is the the uh, conference back in uh, the context back in time. Washington's war in Yemen backfires by Scahill in the nation. Jeremy Scahill in the nation. Washington's war in Yemen backfires. A very important article from 2012. And then this one in the New York Times was this is no, you know, scoop. This was the Obama White House you know, stenography type job that they handed to the New York Times. And um, the keyword here is, all you got to do is you type in Obama, Yemen, placate Saudis. That's your keyword, placate. And what you'll find is, two days of discussions in the West Wing followed, but there was little real debate. Among other reasons, the White House needed to placate the Saudis, as the administration completed a nuclear deal with Iran, Saudi's archenemy. That fact alone eclipsed concerns among many of the president's advisors that the Saudi-led offensive would be long, bloody, and indecisive. They knew it wouldn't work. They did it anyway. To make the Saudis feel better about the Iranian nuclear deal, which of course secures Saudis' interest. It double extra verifies beyond any reason or historical precedent the peaceful nature of Iran's nuclear program. And yet, it opens the door to reproachment with Iran and threatens Saudi Arabia's position in America's order in the Middle East. And so, they got real nervous feeling. And in order to placate them, Obama went along with their bogus war against the Houthis, now two years old. These little babies are starving to death with their grandmas. Um, over the mythology, you know, the, the tall tale that the Houthi movement is somehow a proxy of Iran and only fights because of Iran. That they are Iran's beachhead, the new Persian Empire, on the Arabian Peninsula and all this, which is just completely not true. At all. But, there you go. Gotta placate the Saudis. And then, um, speaking of which, there's this great one by Patrick Coburn from last year, from January 2016. Prince Mohammed bin Salman, naive, arrogant Saudi prince, is playing with fire. And this is about domestic Saudi politics. Right at the time the Houthis were taking over the capital city of Sanaa, a stupid old King Abdullah died and was replaced by uh, King Salman, who is in his late 80s, I think, or anyway, in his 80s, and has dementia and is not running things. His son is running things. His 30-year-old son. I think he's 29 or 30. Yeah, he's 30 now. And the first thing this guy did upon becoming the crown prince and the defense minister was launch this war against Yemen. So this is, you know, a huge part of this has to do with domestic royal family politics inside Saudi Arabia whether this 30-year-old is going to get away with being the crown prince and eventually the king of Saudi Arabia here, or whether somebody else is going to be able to push him aside due to his youth and inexperience. And so, blam, he goes to war. Because war is the health of the crown prince defense minister's position in politics in Saudi Arabia. And see, that money that they take out of your paycheck every Friday goes to do all this killing for this guy not even for Saudi, for the interests of this prince over the other princes in Saudi Arabia. And this bogus war, which anyone could tell you, I think even war proponents could tell you, absolutely, scientifically, mathematically, provenly, cannot work. It is impossible for Saudi Arabia's goal of reinstalling Hadi on the throne in Sana'a To be achieved. And yet the bombing continues. Two years into this. Ground forces on the side of the Saudis, the UAE, and the United States, and Al-Qaeda. Only control a portion of the South. They're nowhere near being able to take Sanaa from the Houthis. Who are now in fact allied with a large, apparently majority, of the army. You know, they call the army, and the former dictator that America backed for 25 years there in alliance with a major part of the population from the north and then now from the center of the country as well. And the U.S. calls them the rebels and calls America and Saudis sock puppet choice to be the uh, pretend president, the El Presidente dictator of the country They call them, him and his forces, the government. Yeah, the UAE tank division. That's the government of Yemen. And the people of Yemen. And their army. Why, they're the rebels. Get it? Just like democracy means, uh, or, or a democratic government, the definition of a democratic government in the world is one that does what America says. If it's democratic and it doesn't do what America says, we bomb the crap out of them. Coup d'etat, regime change them, by hook or by crook, we'll do anything. And yet any dictatorship in the region. Look at Bahrain, where you have, uh, what, 20-something percent minority Sunni dictatorship lording it over the Shiite super majority. And America just arms them. Obama just tells the Saudis, oh yeah, they're rising up, crush them. hey, we've got a naval base to maintain there. It's like Obama's um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mullen, said on Meet the Press. They asked him, geez, what's the difference? How come we're supporting the revolution in Libya but not in Bahrain? And he said, well, because Bahrain is our ally. That's it. And so if they go massacring everybody in the Pearl Roundabout, the Tahrir Square, Uh, of Bahrain, then so. If they torture the doctors who dare to treat protesters wounded by uh, Saudi security forces who came to put down their protest movement, not even insurrection, then, uh, yeah, you know, who cares? Whatever. That's democratic enough for us. There's no human rights abuse that crosses the line as long as the government in question is compliant with American foreign policy goals pretty sure that's about it all right um, where has Trump escalated so far well he's about to escalate in Afghanistan his general there has asked for 5,000 troops and he's going to say sir yes sir and give them to him um, he sent 2,500 something more soldiers to Kuwait to prepare to go to Iraq there are already 5,000 something in Iraq uh, he sent 300 marines to uh infantry to back up special operations forces in Syria fighting um with the uh, Kurdish YPG in their upcoming attack against Raqqa against the Islamic State in Raqqa there and then god knows what after that um and then just uh day before yesterday Charlie Savage wrote in the New York Times that they're taking the gloves off they're treating Somalia as a full-scale war type battlefield um Legally speaking In other words When they want to kill somebody They don't have to ask permission From the White House and an interagency meeting Uh Or anything like that They're going to treat Al-Shabaab Like an enemy army Just go ahead and go after them And in other words Just constraints lifted For chapter 3 of America's war Against the people of Somalia Uh Which is really just One of the tragedies of our time It's just out of control Um And then Libya, of course, uh, Hillary's al-Qaeda guys in Libya are still a major problem. They'll probably go to Mali after that. As I told you all, especially if you heard me on Ernie's show for the last year, every Friday morning, I've been doing the Ernie show, and I've just been telling you, and Donald Trump told you, you know, he's somewhat backing off regime change, maybe, if we're lucky, but boy, oh boy, when it comes to war against al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, all gloves are off. General Mattis, go ahead and do whatever you want. I know I was telling you all this from 2015, at because I remember saying it. I remember where on the calendar we were when I was saying it. When this guy's inaugurated, the first day he comes into power, he's going to gather his the admirals, the generals, the CIA chiefs, and he's going to tell them, all right, you boys go out there and do whatever the hell you want. Just let me know. And you can already see it with General Mattis, that his attitude is we're just going to take the fight. He's going to send his Marines, uh, as they call them, uh, to go and fight the Islamic State for the next eight years and whatever, you know, different breakoffs of Al Qaeda and the Islamic State around the region. And, you know, yeah, there used to be a couple of hundred of these guys. Now there's a couple of 10,000 of them. And so plenty of make work. So, yeah, Afghanistan, I hadn't heard about Pakistan yet, but I guess we'll see. But certainly Afghanistan, Yemen, where they're taking the fight. If you read the Washington Post piece, they hardly even mention Al Qaeda. It's like McChrystal adding Al Qaeda to the to the propaganda after the fact. Oh yeah, we gotta mention Al Qaeda to justify this thing. I almost forgot. The whole thing's about the Houthis. Mattis wants to go to war against the Houthis for Al Qaeda in Yemen. And then Somalia, Libya, the rest of North Africa, and probably over to West Africa as well. And God knows what. And then another question along those lines was, what's the future of the American occupation in Raqqa? What are the Americans going to do in Raqqa? They're going to help the Kurds rouse the Islamic State out of there. That's clear enough. But then what? Occupy the place? Make the Marines occupy the place? Or you can't send in the Kurds uh, to occupy the place, the YPG. They won't be welcome there as the new dominant army unless they kick all the Arabs out of there, which that's not going to happen, I don't think. I don't think the Kurdish YPG really have an interest in that, to be honest. Um, But then I'm not so certain that um, even if Trump, even if American politics would allow for a deal where Trump says, go ahead, Assad, and occupy Raqqa and reintegrate it into the Syrian state. I'm not so sure if he could, if the Syrian Arab army has the strength. Um, and certainly it would depend on the amount of resistance there in Raqqa, and maybe they would be breathing a sigh of relief after the Islamic State. They'd be happy to have the Syrian Arab army back now. You know, I don't know. But it seems like a real touchy situation, and then, of course, you now have, for you know going on five years, the autonomous Kurdish region here in northern Syria, backed by American forces who obviously have all kinds of duplicitous motives here, and so what's the future relationship between the Kurdish YPG and the Americans and the Russians and the Turks and Assad's army? Right now, the Russians cooked up a deal where the Americans and the, and the Syrian Arab army and the Russians have basically pulled into this channel, into this corridor between the Turks and the Kurds to keep them separated. Is that where we want to be? Peacekeepers between our two allies who are at each other's throats. We got special operations forces acting as baby blue helmet peacekeepers in Manbij. I mean, Manbij, I guess. Yeah. Huh? Really? And you know it is. I ticked them off the other day. It's the Battle of the Eleven Armies over there. That's the mess that uh, Bush and Obama have gotten us into here. You got the Kurdish Peshmerga, The Shiite Iraqi Arab Army, Shiite militias, Sunni tribal militias, actually, that are fighting with them. And you got the Islamic State, of course, Al-Qaeda, America, Turkey, the Syrian Arab Army, the Russians, and, well, I guess I could add the Israelis, and Hezbollah, and Saudi and and, uh, UAE play a financial role, and now I'm up to 13 or 14, right? This is the this is the mess. Oh, and I left out the YPG on that count, right? Did I say the YPG? Uh, yeah, boy, oh boy, what a mess. Who the hell wants to be stuck in the middle of that? Not Scott. Hmm. Um, which I guess leads to the next question. What do the neocons want? And I think, yeah, the answer is this. And, um, well, you know what? Let me keep this short for you, but recommend some reading. From Clean Break to Dirty Wars and Seize the Chaos. Both of those are by Dan Sanchez at antiwar.com. Clean Break to Dirty Wars and Seize the Chaos. Uh, let's see. Shattering the Middle East for Israel's Northern Front and Israel, the neocons, and their bloody, blundering art of war. And this is about, you know, faster, please. Let's create a boiling cauldron, as Michael Ledeen used to put it. And just, uh, as, as David Wormser wrote in Coping with Crumbling States, we must expedite the chaotic collapse to Syria so that then we'll be in the position to better control what happens in the aftermath, etc. But then we won't have to deal with uh, the Baathist government there which supports Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And really, both of these articles by Dan Sanchez, Clean Break to Dirty Wars and Seize the Chaos, what they are is their reviews of two studies written by David Wormser, who ended up becoming Dick Cheney's National Security Advisor, uh, Middle East Advisor, uh, in the Bush Jr. years. And uh, the first one is more famous, A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm. And then the companion piece is Coping with Crumbling States, a Western and Israeli balance of power strategy for the Levant. And... What you do is, uh, you read both of those, they're from 20 years ago, then you read Dan Sanchez from last year, with hindsight, saying, okay, so here's what they planned, here's how it worked out, and uh, here's what it all means. It's brilliant stuff. The great Dan Sanchez, everybody, give him a round of applause. And then, if you want to know more, um, I actually don't have footnotes for the original Zabatinsky, but... um, Eric Margulies says that uh, Jabotinsky and the original Zionists talked about smashing all the Middle Eastern states into the smallest pieces possible way back 100 years ago at the dawn of Zionism. So uh, that very well could be, uh, but I don't know that myself, but that's what Margulies says, so I'm sure he's read it and knows what he means. Uh, But there is this, and you can find it at informationclearinghouse.info, The Zionist Plan for the Middle East by Oded Yanan. And it's completely ridiculous. It's about how the Soviet communists are, of course, going to end up ruling the world forever and probably even destroying Israel. But in the meantime, uh, they need to smash all the local Arab states into the smallest pieces possible. That's the best way to guarantee their survival. And it really is crazy uh, if you read it. But um, that's the thinking, I think, of of a lot of these neoconservatives who clearly put Israel first and put the doctrines of the most hardcore right-wing nationalists in Israel first. And uh, this is the kind of crazy stuff that they think and do. And if you look at Israel's role in the war in Syria, uh, you can see how this plays out. Uh, Type in Oren Sunnis, O-R-E-N Sunnis, and it'll come right up on YouTube, where he talks about how Israel prefers the Islamic State to Hezbollah. Israel prefers the Islamic State to Assad. And then the reason why, the two reasons why that he invokes are total lies. The first is blaming Assad for all the deaths in the war there when it's an America, Israel, Saudi, Turkey, UAE created war. Is the only reason anybody died in the damn thing. And half the people that died are Syrian soldiers fighting to defend the state from the foreign al-Qaeda backed invaders. So, oh, yeah, no, but all casualties in the whole Syrian war are on him, and they're all innocent civilians. None of them are al-Qaeda terrorists or soldier combatants. And then his second lie is, oh, because Iran has military nuclear technology. And so then, presumably, pretend if you use your imagination, they could give the nukes they don't have to Assad or to Hezbollah, who could then use them on Israel. I mean, as long as we're making up things, why not give them, you know, H-bombs and ICBMs and whatever you want. And for this reason, so from the point of view of Israel, the Islamic State is better. And yes, he is directly referring to the Islamic State because he even refers to them. This is only a week after Baghdadi declared himself the caliph, only two or three weeks after the fall of Mosul. And he directly refers to the Islamic State slaughtering Iraqi army conscripts in the field. So he's not saying, oh yeah, the mythical moderates one day will take over Syria. He's talking about Baghdadi and ISIS. And he's saying, we preferred these bad guys to those bad guys. He told the same thing to the Jerusalem Post. And in 2013, you can see, there's no question about it. When Obama almost bombed uh, Damascus over the phony red line and the uh, false flag sarin attack, The only interest group in America that wanted that war was AIPAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, meeting in D.C. right now as we speak, in fact. No other interest group in America was pushing for that war other than Israel's fifth column in this country, period. And the right-wing AM radio rank-and-file, they didn't want it. Um, you know, maybe the arms industry wanted it, something like that. I even had a conspiracy theory. If you remember at the time, I was just making this up, but it did kind of fit. That Obama didn't really want to do it. That he painted himself in the corner with this stupid red line thing. His intelligence agencies were telling him, we know now for a fact that Clapper told him, I can't stand by the claim that Assad did this, dude. So he didn't want to do it. Really, he said this is not a slam dunk. Even Jeffrey Goldberg later admitted that, amazingly. Um, and so I kind of had a theory back at the time that Obama had made it known, had you know, had his people tell APAC, I really, really need y'all's help. Pull out all the stops, Israel lobby, to help get us into this war just to put them out on a limb. Because he knew he wasn't going to do it anyway. And just to make it even more plain, just to give them one more failure. The Israel lobby that he had grown to resent so much. And that's probably just wishful thinking. But, you know, you find me another interest group in America outside of the Zionist movement who wanted the war against Syria in 2013. And just look, they've been bombing Hezbollah targets inside uh, Syria this whole time since the war started. fact i remember even back in the early days of the war maybe 2012 they started bombing hezbollah targets and weapons caches and i was even rationalizing in my head well you know they say they're bombing to keep them out of the hands of hezbollah but i wonder because we know that there are cia-backed terrorists right near there i wonder if actually they're afraid that the cia-backed terrorists are going to get them and that that could blow back on them but yeah no apparently not they really meant exactly what they said they're perfectly happy to see al-qaeda and the islamic state rule syria Just as long as it's not the secular Ba'athists in alliance with Iran and Hezbollah. They're crazy, man. I'm telling you, these neocons. Well, they're stupid. In fact, as long as I'm uh, giving you footnotes, and there's a million footnotes about how they lied us into Iraq, but this one is one of my very, very favorites. And it's called How Chalabi Conned the Neocons. About how Chalabi was working for Iran and told the, well, he's working for himself first and Iran second or third, I guess. But, um, And he told the neocons, whatever they wanted to hear, that the new Shiite controlled Iraq will be an ally of Israel and everything will be great. And they bought it because they're stupid. That's a big part of, of uh, Dan Sanchez's articles here, too. Um, a big part of a clean break and coping with crumbling states. You can see Wombser names Chalabi and recycles his mythology, you know, almost word for word. You know, these idiot neocons believe anything, as long as it confirms their bias. And I'm telling you, man, you read that, read that, seriously. How Chalabi conned the neocons. Yes, it's in Salon.com, but I don't know if you know this, but back 13 years ago, they actually ran journalism in Salon.com. It was a totally different thing than it is now. And the article is actually written by a guy from the Financial Times. It was just, you know, a one-off thing. It wasn't like one of their writers. It's a serious journalist with a serious report for you. And you read that and you'll be like, man, oh man. I'll tell you, it's something. Uh, now, some of the neocons like Paul Wolfowitz and Robert Kagan, I think they somewhat really do believe in this whole uh, spread democracy crap. But then they're nuts if they think that spreading democracy is done with war. They're going to bring people into modernity and try to you know, create allies. Uh, by blowing people apart with high explosives so either they're the most cynical liars or they're the most naive idiot warmongers ever you choose and it's all mixed up really right some of them believe their own lies some of them are just lying all right um oh and the threat versus iran Okay, so people are asking me, is there going to be a war with Iran? And other people are asking me, is there even really a threat from Iran? And the answer is no. And the worst thing Iran has done in this century was use Chalabi to lie the neocons into war against Saddam. But that's all America's fault. You can't blame Iran for that. And then Bush took their side and fought for the most Iranian-backed factions among the Iraqi Shiites. The Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution and the Dawa Party. We've had a Dawa Party prime minister installed by America this whole time, since 2005. Jafari and then Maliki and now Abadi, all from the Dawa Party, sock puppets of the Iranians. So if you really have a problem with the Ayatollah, you know, blame George Bush and James Mattis. They're the ones who got rid of Saddam Hussein. Um, You know, you might remember George Bush's father in the Reagan years uh, backed Saddam to contain the Iranian Shiite revolution. And then, after the first Gulf War against Saddam, he betrayed the Shiite uprising that he had encouraged George Bush's father when he realized that, oh, it's Shiite militias backed by the Iranians are the dominant force among the Shiites. And realized he'd be completely reversing the Reagan era policy of backing Saddam to contain Iran—he'd be importing the Iranian Revolution to Iraq. Oops! And so he backstabbed them and left them high and dry and let Saddam massacre them all. Nearly a hundred thousand something people were killed in the great stab in the back, the great Bay of Pigs of the desert in 1991. Yeah, you guys go fight and then leave them high and dry. And then there's their surprise that Iran gained from. The Ayatollah's policy, which was get rid of Saddam if you can somehow, like send Chalabi to lie to a bunch of Zionists and make a bunch of glittering promises about how wonderful everything's going to be if only they'll get rid of Saddam, if only they'll tell George Bush he's right. It really is a smart thing to do. Um, But otherwise, all this hype about Iran is just a bunch of hype. They haven't attacked America since 1983 in the uh, Beirut barracks attack. And, uh, hell, you know, the Israelis stayed friendly with them all the way through the early 90s until they needed a scapegoat for domestic political reasons. But the Iranian Revolution was no deterrent to relations with Israel for more than a decade after the Revolution. Ronald Reagan used the Israelis to sell the TOW missiles for the Iran-Contra deal. So, if Ronald Reagan can sell them missiles, then we can sell them regular domestic products. Seems like to me. Fair enough, right? Hell, even Dick Cheney said in 1998 when he was the head of Aliburton that Bill Clinton ought to lift these sanctions. The Iranians are people too, and we want to do business with them. Good enough for Dick Cheney in 1998. Alright, and I've gone on way too long, and you know, I did two different takes of this yesterday, both of which were better than this, but anyway. um, The book. It's almost done. I mean, sometime in April it'll be out, I guess, because I can't stand working on it anymore. So, I don't know how well written it is, you know, I got a couple uh, editor people trying to help me fix it up. I'm not that good of a writer, but I'm right about everything, so, should be good. My Afghan war book. Uh, So, yeah, that'll be coming out soon. Stay tuned. Give you plenty of opportunities to get your hands on one. Coming up here pretty soon. All right. Uh, I think that's everything on the list, except for the things that I'm forgetting. So uh, thanks, y'all, for listening very much. If uh, if you want to help support, stop by scotthorton.org support, libertarianinstitute.org donate. In fact, really, stop by the blog and help support Will Gregg right now, would you? Uh, libertarianinstitute.org slash blog. For all the information there to help out Will Grigg who's sick in the hospital. All right. uh, And patronize my sponsors, please. Thank you. Oh, and somebody asked me about net neutrality. I have no idea. I mean, I guess I figure I'm against any new laws being passed about anything other than repealing old laws. Is that a good enough answer?